This is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Mistakes were made. Police in Uvalde, Texas, admitting it was the wrong decision not to storm the classroom at Robb Elementary, where a mass shooter was killing 19 kids and two teachers. Nearly 20 officers stood in a hallway during the attack for more than 45 minutes. We go in-depth into what went wrong with the police response. And while families in Uvalde are mourning the NRA, holding its convention 300 miles away in Houston. No guns, though, allowed when former President Trump shows up. Conspiracy theories already popping up about the shooting. We look into why this happens always after such tragic events. And the war in Ukraine, it has shifted to the eastern portion of the country, where Russia is making some gains. Are things now changing, though, in favor of Russia. People love their smartphones. So what's the harm in using them too often? There's going to be a study about how they impact mental health, so we can probably have some guesses about how they're not good for us. Since the pandemic, more people are working remotely at home, some of them moving to more affordable areas. Businesses have noticed they want to pay people less when they do that. And lots of excitement this week on TV and at the movies. Obi-Wan, Stranger Things, Top Gun. Uh, no shortage of entertainment this weekend, so we will end the show talking about that. But why do I have a feeling you're going to see all three of those? I guess, yeah. Yeah, I <laughs> thought so. Okay. We start, though, with uh, the mass shooting. CBS reporter Jim Crusula is in Uvalde and was at the news conference this morning. Where police admitted, well, they made the wrong decision. Jim, thanks for being with us. I guess a key question, uh, at least in my mind, having watched the news conference, is if that time gap, the amount of time it took until the police eventually got themselves into that classroom uh, and shot the, uh, uh, the shooter, did that make a difference in terms of the number of fatalities? In other words, were, do we know whether or not the kids and the teacher in that classroom were killed instantly when the shooter barged in, or was it something that took that entire span of time? If you listen to what they said in terms of the timeline from the head of really what's actually the state police here, the Department of Public Safety in Texas, Stephen McCraw, if you listen to the timeline he gave out, it gives you the impression that all of the shootings took place initially when that 18-year-old gunman went into that fourth-grade classroom. Then there was, uh, there was no gunfire for an extended period of time. And as you mentioned, the police were waiting outside in a hallway. Why did they do that, according to McGraw? Because the commander on scene mistakenly, now we can say mistakenly, thought that they were dealing with a barricade situation as opposed to an active shooter because there was no longer any shooting going on in that room. We have these 911 calls, though, and that's ending up being a huge problem for a lot of people who are saying, well, no, they should have known because there were still calls coming in and somehow that didn't translate over to the team that was in that hallway. If they thought this was a barricade, why are kids calling 911 saying, send the police and help me? And why is that info not getting to the officers who are, are there on the scene? It certainly seems that there was a communication breakdown somewhere in the whole process between the 911 calls and the dispatchers getting that information to the police who were in the school. There were about 20 officers in the school, and then ultimately a tactical team from the Federal Border Patrol came in and shot the gunman. Uvalde's only about 70 miles or so from the Rio Grande River, the Mexican border. 
I I can't imagine that this latest news, uh, on top of everything else that has transpired in that town in the past few days, I can't imagine this latest news uh, is not having an, an enormous impact on the people who live there, especially their parents and relatives and friends, which is, I guess, almost everybody in town, right, of those who were killed. Fellas, I guess I'd have to say, being here since early Wednesday morning now, as the week has progressed, I think it's fair to say that the initial disbelief and anguish and total despair and the grief, the deep, deep grief, obviously, has given way somewhat, at least for some family members, perhaps the majority of them, to anger and frustration, again, over these nagging questions about the police response. And could anything have been done to lessen the horrible loss of life here? What are some of the other things we still have to answer? One of them, I, I imagine, is is the school resource officer was not on campus at the time, but apparently knew there was nine one one call and then rushed over there. But then the shooter was hiding behind one of the cars, so he drove past him. Yes. But do we not? I imagine everyone's endeavoring to try and figure out where that officer was and, and why he wasn't there at the uh, at the time, if he was supposed to be on that campus at that moment. Exactly. We don't know that yet, if he was supposed to be there at that time. One of the things that struck me, too, from the news conference this morning, the enormous, the stunning amount of ammunition this 18-year-old kid had, 60 magazines uh, translating into just over 1,650 individual bullets. CBS reporter Jim Crisula there in Uvalde. Jim, thanks. The community of Uvalde Mounting is mourning, but 300 miles away in Houston, the NRA is holding its annual convention. Former President Trump set to speak there this weekend. Protests outside the convention are getting sort of on the loud side. With us is Zach Despart, the politics reporter for the Texas Tribune. He's covering the NRA convention in Houston right now. Zach, thanks for taking the time to uh, be with us. Um, so set the, the, the sort of mood that's happening at the convention there, uh, both inside, if you were inside and outside. Sure. Well, first, thanks for having me. I've been uh, both inside and outside the convention today, and I would say it's uh, sort of raucous on both sides. Uh, outside there were uh, easily more than a thousand protesters last time I checked uh, on the green sort of across the street from the convention hall, uh, spurred up by the uh, shooting at the school in Uvalde earlier this week, uh, who feel that the NRA should not um, have had their annual meeting here that they had previously scheduled uh, and feel that the organization in the, in the gun lobby more broadly is not sufficiently um, uh, protecting the rights of Americans by being unwilling to support any sort of restrictions whatsoever on, on guns. Uh, inside is rockets as well. Uh, a lot of crowd in here. Uh, President Trump's going to speak in about uh, an hour. The speech has just started. Uh, a lot of people were very excited to be here. Um, spoke with a number of them. They uh, feel the, the shooting was horrific uh, and should not have happened, but they do not do not support any restrictions on guns. So it doesn't feel toned down at all inside. I mean, conventions are parties. That's why people go usually, but it's kind of that atmosphere still. Uh, it's still uh, an, an excited atmosphere. Yes. You know, we, we were talking, Zach, in, in the office earlier about that. There's a sort of irony to this whole thing in the sense that, uh, as I understand it, and correct me if I'm, I'm wrong, because of secret service protocols that a former president would have, no weapons are being allowed inside the NRA convention while Mr. Trump is there. And I, I'm guessing that no one is complaining about that. 
But wouldn't these be some of the same people that would be complaining about gun restrictions elsewhere? That's a tough question to answer. The people are allowed to carry guns uh, at the convention, just not in the hall where the former president is going to be speaking. Of course, that's a Secret Service rule. That's not a, uh, a rule that Trump himself had set. Um, yeah, I, I imagine some of these people would otherwise carry if that rule wasn't in place, but I'm not sure beyond that. The governor of Texas is not going to appear anymore. He's going to do it via video, right? But who else is still going that's a, a big name that we'd recognize? Uh, well, uh, Wayne LaPierre, the executive vice president of the NRA, public face of the organization, was speaking just as when I got on the call. I believe we have uh, Senator Ted Cruz, who is still uh, on the bill. Like you said, uh, Governor Abbott's not appearing anymore. He'll appear virtually. I'm not sure what he will say. Uh, obviously, politically, he's trying to walk a very fine line uh, between supporting the, the victims in Uvalde and um, supporting this organization that he has for a long time. I mean, as far as you can tell, has any adjustments been made other than the people who are now either not going to be there or who are going to be there by, by video? Have any adjustment, adjustments been made at all to the program because of the shooting just 300 miles away? Uh, there have definitely been some adjustments to the, the speeches. Um, like I said, Wayne LaPierre just kicked off before I jumped on this call, and he uh, specifically had added to his speech the, the need to uh, provide better security for schools, to provide um, better and, and armed security, uh, as well as provide better funding for mental health programs. That's pretty much the same political line that Governor Abbott has walked. Again, all of those things have nothing to do with, with gun restrictions. Zach Desparts, politics reporter, the Texas Tribune, there at the convention right now. Russian forces are slowly gaining ground in eastern Ukraine. They've seized one city and are trying to surround a larger one. This comes as more news comes out about the losses Russia has endured in Ukraine when it comes to manpower and equipment. Uh, journalist Phil Itner back with us in Lviv, uh, very soon headed back to Kiev. Phil, thanks for being back here with us. So in terms of where things are right now, how do you gauge it with these reports that Ukrainians have lost some ground? Is this a major setback, a minor one that's to be expected sometimes? Well, a little of all of the above. Uh, it's, it's to be expected. Uh, the Ukrainian forces were well aware that this is the strategic objective of the Russians. And they kind of had a salient out there, a, a bulge out in the far east around a town called Severodonetsk. And that seems to be where the Russians are concentrating their firepower. And what they're trying to do basically is to gain that strategic objective that they have overall within Ukraine, which is to connect that land bridge down to Crimea, and then subsequently also have control of the water canal that supports the peninsula. So it does look like the Russians are concentrating on that sector of the country. It does look like they're making gains. But the Ukrainians are quick to add that they are getting more and more weapons every day and that there can also be expected a counteroffensive. I was reading uh, an article this morning, and I wanted to get your input on this, uh, Phil, uh, that was basically sort of trying to dissect what a victory or what a, 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 a finish to this war is likely to look at. And it was pointing out that we're starting to see some cracks in the uh, what was up till now anyway, this great cohesion among our Western allies. And everyone seems to have a different definition 
of where this is headed. The U.S. wants to, you know, uh, bring Russia down to a level where it can't do something like this again. Some of the Europeans just want to return to the territory before the invasion. I gather the uh, Ukrainian president uh, wants to also go back to, uh, you know, pre-invasion times. Uh, is that something that, that's being talked about a lot there? Oh, an awful lot. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's a main topic of conversation. The Ukrainians actually don't just want to go back to the pre-August uh, uh, 2022 line. They they want to go all the way back to the lines as they were drafted following the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991. And that would, of course, include the Crimean Peninsula itself. That might be high aspirations, and it might open up a whole other can of worms because Russia does actually uh, uh, consider Crimea part of its uh, territory now that there was that referendum under a gun after the Maidan incidents in 2014. But what is possible and what is actually conquered on the ground in terms of the war effort and who holds what territory, that's going to be a significant conversation because, as I say, it does look like the Russians are going to gain control of that land bridge. Can they walk away from this war, having won that uh, strategic victory, but losing the strategic victory of of taking the capital and changing the leadership in Kiev, that is up to uh, President Zelensky and Putin to determine. President Zelensky here in Ukraine saying that he insists that any kind of uh, peace talks are held on the presidential level. So that would mean direct talks with Vladimir Putin. Has there been any movements on getting some of the food, some of the grain exports out of Ukraine that apparently are being blocked because Ukraine's a breadbasket? We've talked about this before, and that poses a huge problem for, like, world food security if you can't get that stuff out of there. Yeah, it's a huge problem. Uh, there is a naval blockade in the Black Sea. Uh, there's been an awful lot of talk about actually supplying the Ukrainians with anti more anti-ship uh, missiles to, uh, to kind of open up that blockade. Um, but right now, no, not a lot of food is getting out from where it should be getting out along that port uh, area down near Odessa on the Black Sea. Now, the Russians, in addition to that, are taking many of these uh, grain stores, and uh, they are trying to put that on the open market as well. So it may be, uh, you know, maybe grain that's being sold that is stolen. In fact, uh, several countries have already re have, uh, have resisted doing that, Egypt notably. Uh, but, you know, the, the food situation is potentially very dangerous. And uh, this is a major exporter of grain. And there will be global ramifications if somehow that grain can't get to market. I should also quickly notice, uh, note as well, however, that um, uh, much of these grain supplies are actually being destroyed in the war because there's so much indiscriminate firing going on. This has ground down into kind of a war of artillery which means you're just blanketing entire areas with ammunition, with ordnance. And uh, it, it, it means that those, store, those uh, storage facilities are hit, being hit as well. Journalist Phil Itner, thanks again. From uh, Lviv, or in Lviv now, but uh, soon headed back to Kiev. Thank you. You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. So we've talked about this before. Sometimes you leave the house, uh, keys, wallets, and then, oh, the phone. Yeah, Are you I've down the street that. already? Do you yeah. feel like lost without the thing? It's weird because we're kind of tethered to it, right? Yeah, and if I leave it at home, I kind of feel like, sorry. But, like, it's like, oh, wow. <laughs> it's, it's, miss by its, yeah, it's by itself and yeah. it doesn't know what to do. Well, plus, you can't check your TikToks. So <laughs> yeah. uh, you can't escape the phones. Um, no. But they're great. But also, at what cost is it having these things in our lives? And to uh, sort of 
go down that road a bit. Researchers at the University of Oregon, they are partnering with Google. They're going to study the impact of smartphones on mental health, past studies. Well, they've linked social media consumption to mental health in young people. But will this study find something similar? With us is Jason Robison, who's program director for SHARE. That's the Self-Help and Recovery Exchange. They help people here in Los Angeles who struggle with mental health issues. Jason, thanks for being with us. Um, so, as I said, I mean, there have been some studies uh, and some of them have been, you know, validated. Some have been debunked about the impact that uh, smartphone use has on, on people, especially young, younger, impressionable people. What's your experience been with your organization and people who do have mental health issues? Are you finding anything that links them to the use of, of these cell phones? For a long time, there we one of the things that we do at SHARE is self-help support groups. So we track self-help support groups because they're evidence-based practices. And in Los Angeles County alone, there are 12,000 self-help support groups service for over 750 different life issues. So wherever somebody's going through something, there's a self-help support group where people can find support with other people going through the same thing. And long before there were smartphones, after the development of the internet, we started to see self-help support groups forming for people's um, compulsive behavior around the internet, around uh, um, pornography, for example, is a, a, an issue that people have created multiple self-help support groups for um, that kind of uh, addiction or behavior. So we do see a lot of use and, um, and isolation as well with the use of smartphones. So I think that using smartphones intentionally and making sure that we have support in our lives are essential for our mental health. Is it the phone's fault or is it that the phone is just a portal to Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok? The phone gets you to social media and social media is the problem. It's all interrelated. You're absolutely right. And we get pleasure in those things. Those social media apps give us pleasure. They trigger reward centers in our brain. And so some things that people do with success are things like making sure that they are timing the amount of time they spend on particular sites or apps, that they are using those apps with intention and that they're also using their phone to broaden their network for support because 40% of whether we are okay or not okay is directly related to the amount and quality of social support in our lives. And as we're more and more isolated and more and more dependent on this kind of technology, that can increase our isolation. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm always struck by, and it happens maybe once or twice a month, I'll be in a restaurant or something, and you'll see you know, a family of like four or five, and they're at a table, and they're not talking to each other. They're all on their individual yes. phones. Mm -hmm. That's very common. And, and again, it's about trying to create some, um, some expectations, especially with young people, and even with ourselves as adults, creating an expectation and a real intention about how we're going to use that technology, what we're going to communicate. And when we are in a space where we're physically together, being clear about what those expectations are that we connect with each other. And sometimes, you know, there are many families that have um, 
turn the phone off hours, you know, put the phone in the basket when you, you know, at 8 p.m. phones are off. So there are lots of things that people can do to kind of take the power back a little bit from their phones. Jason Robinson, Program Director for Share Self-Help and Recovery Exchange, uh, which helps people here in L.A. Get to that table, flip it over, put it, put the screen side down so you can't see the notifications pop up. Yeah, but I, I think if I did that, my phone would seek retribution. <laughs> the flashlight turns on. <laughs> yeah. Hey, I'm over here. Yeah, so I, I don't know if I can do that. The pandemic and the shutdowns, we all know it led to a surge of people working from home, and many of them decided there was no point in living close to work in a you know big expensive city so they moved to more affordable areas since location was no longer a factor so far so good right yeah yeah well the companies figured it out i thought they would and bosses are not always nice people really so some are now <laughs> thinking that since you live someplace cheaper yeah you can work for less pay is this going to start some sort of new trends? Alexandra Von Tiergarten, Senior Regional Director with the employment firm Robert Half is with us. Alexandra, thank you. So what are we seeing out there when we uh, look at these surveys of what companies are doing if someone does move, you know, to some other place where, uh, you know, the rent and the cost of living is not what it is in, in, in San Francisco, Los Angeles? No, absolutely. Well, what we're seeing and what our research is telling us is companies are still looking, about 60% of companies are still looking for local candidates. Uh, but to the companies that, you know, are interested in remote candidates, about two-thirds of them are still paying based on the state that they're operating in. So they're paying people if they live in Idaho, but they're working for a corporate center in California, they're being paid the same um, as the company in California. And about one-third of the companies are doing that evaluation uh, to make changes depending upon where the person is. And the companies that are changing what they pay employees because they move to a cheaper area, is there a sole reason for doing that because the employee doesn't have to pay as much for living expenses? But what about the argument that shouldn't somebody be paid what they're worth for doing the job? Well, I think there's an evaluation for what the job is worth, irregardless of the area. And then there has to be an evaluation for the cost of living in the area that you're operating in. So, you know, as I mentioned, two-thirds of the companies are making this shift, um, you know, or, or not making the shift, rather, and, and one-third, you know, is taking a look at that. But you have all these other factors going on right now as well where you have, you know, inflation and you have um, candidates quitting at a rate that we haven't seen before. You know, 4.5 million U.S. workers quit their jobs in March. So it is a candidate market still. So employers can only do so much in this area. They've got to compete. And even if they're competing for remote workers, they're having to pay more. Yeah, is this happening more for when people are applying for a job and then the company says, well, where are you planning on working from? And then they calculate there. Or if someone is working in a city, but they've gone remote now and then they move, is it is it changing on them once they you know update the address in the payroll system? Depends on the company. Right. Some companies are doing it as they are, you know, putting a posting out for a remote worker and they might have a range in one state versus another. And other companies are, you know, how who have gone full remote are taking a look at the cost of living changes for their employees. Because again, as we look at different changes 
inflation, they're having to give raises to keep people as well. So it's. Well, I think we're. I think we're to we're, lose the phone. We'll let her go through the tunnel for just a second. Yeah, I hope and she's then, not, <laughs> Maybe maybe she's moving to a cheaper city. <laughs> right? Are you in a U-Haul, perhaps? Uh, <laughs> Are you there? Oh, did you lose me? A little yeah, bit. Just yeah. a little bit. We, I, I said, oh, I, I'm so sorry. No, no, no. We thought maybe you moved to a cheaper place, and we didn't know. <laughs> right, right. I, I'm actually calling from a less expensive cell phone. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> I'm curious. No, I'm sorry. What, what did you mean? No, we got it all before it, before it trailed off. Um, I'm curious, okay. though, if there are some companies out there giving people, and maybe this depends on, on where they're living or not, but, but being very upfront in the hiring ad saying, you know what, if you want to come in, here's your salary. If you want to work remote, it's 10% less. Are we seeing any of that just to try and lure people back into offices? I have not seen any of that. But I know that as we are giving advice to employers that work with us at Robert Half, we're advising them to be upfront with the candidates that they're looking at in the process because, again, there's so many more job openings than there are candidates that if they're not upfront in the beginning and then they get to the end of the process and give an offer and say, well, you're in this state where cost of living is less than California, so we're going to pay you less, then they're losing the candidates and, you know, they're wasting their time and the candidates' time. Are so em- we're advising against that. Are employers sort of surprised that there are, you know, a certain number of employees that initially stayed home because of the pandemic but now just don't want to come back? Has that caught them by surprise? I think it's caught all of us by surprise, even in ourselves, right, where many of us, when we were first had to stay home, we didn't like it. And then people have gotten used to that. And there is an adjustment happening, you know, for employers as well as employees now. What about choosing your location if they really want you to come in, especially some of the tech companies? I'd imagine, you know, hey, it's uh, maybe in San Francisco or maybe you can have the Mountain View office or we've got one in Santa Monica, but we want to see you at a desk, at least in one of those three spots. So most companies are going to a hybrid option. We're seeing a lot of companies where that hybrid is two to three days a week. And so they have to live somewhat local in order to make it in there. You know, I have um, candidates that I'm dealing with that may, you know, only have to come in once or twice a week. So they're still living an hour and a half to two hours from where they're working, which you would never, we we could never have done that before. But you are seeing that. But, you know, if they they want you in the office, for the most part, people are not getting on planes to get there. All right. Alexander Von Tiergarten, Senior Regional Director, the employment firm Robert Half. Tim, we want to come in like once a year. (laughs) So that's a whole different thing. So who are you? Yeah. (laughs) All right. More In-Depth is coming up. This is KNX In-Depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Every time there's a tragic event in the country, like the mass shooting in Uvalde, certain areas of the Internet get flooded with all kinds of conspiracy theories. Some of them go nowhere, others spread quickly. Not long after the Uvalde shooting, conspiracies came out that there was a false flag operation. There were unfounded claims the shooter was transgender and an illegal immigrant. Where did people come up with this stuff? Jessica Galani is a media studies professor at the University of Pittsburgh-Greensburg. She's a researcher at the Pitt Disinformation Lab. Jessica, thanks for being with us. So where do people come up with this stuff? You know, it's difficult to pinpoint exactly where these ideas originate. 
I think that what has happened in this case is we're seeing with all of the mass shootings that have occurred, and unfortunately, there's no shortage of them, the immediate response from fringe-based social media ecosystems is that it's a false flag, that it's politically motivated, that there, you know, some, something fake about it. And the first time that I had heard about this kind of idea was nearly 10 years ago when Alex Jones claimed that it was a false flag operation during the horrific shooting at Sandy Hook Elementary School in Newton, Connecticut. And since then, it seems like that's the go-to response for uh, conspiracists and, and for kind of fringe social media circles to proclaim in the aftermath of this kind of tragedy. Yeah, and we've seen it a couple of ways here. And then there's the other side of it, too, which is there are groups out there that are just intolerant, right, who will pick whatever people they hate and blame them for that, whether there's a connection or not. Yes, the conspiracy about the identity of the shooter in Uvalde is a great example of that. The desire to try to politicize that identity and and to use it to, you know, further uh, arguments about either gender identity or about immigration. Um, that certainly seems to be the motivation with that particular facet of the many conspiracies that are surrounding the shooting. And, and I guess we should differentiate right between misinformation and disinformation because misinformation is is just people are, are reporting stuff that they think is true but it turns out not to be whereas disinformation right would be a, a deliberate attempt to deceive and and so my question i guess is do we know if most of these uh social media uh you know campaigns that that are spreading all this stuff are by people who are just innocently spreading uh, rumors that they think are true and but turn out not to be, or are they mostly spread by people who are setting out to deceive? I think that it's difficult to identify the precise percentages, but when it comes to disinformation, misinformation is the uh, helpmate for sure. And I think that the vast majority of people want to share information they believe to be true. I think that disinformation can scale when people are convinced that it's true and then seek to share that information with good intentions. They don't necessarily mean to, you know, spread wrong stuff, but when there's breaking news, the information that we want can't come out as fast as we want it to. So inevitably that means that even people who are savvy about disinformation might slip up and end up spreading it with good intention, but, but it's still, you know, the wrong stuff. Uh, there was a study of Facebook in last May, actually, May of last year, that pinpointed, or maybe it was two years ago, that pinpointed 12 accounts um, that were just very influential, that were the sources of disinformation. But because they were so influential, people unknowingly spread wrong information that they thought was the truth. So it can really go to scale and, and be massively widespread through misinformation that folks didn't realize, um, you know, they were spreading the wrong stuff. For those who want to spread the wrong stuff, some of it, I'm sure, has ill intent and motives behind it. Does some of it also, though, just start in forums as people being awful and just trolling to troll and then other people start posting it and then we're off to the races? Oh, yes. I mean, I think there is a kind of gamified way that people approach it. Like, how much how much can this scale? How, how fast can this go viral? I saw something yesterday on Twitter. It was a 
an account claiming to be a relative of one of the victims. And he claimed falsely that a person from uh, Governor Abbott's uh, political orbit tried to bribe him into some kind of uh, photo op situation. And it was totally made up. This account actually had claimed to be the relative of victims of mass shootings in a few other cases. And in two hours, it had already been liked 65,000 times. It had been signal boosted by lots of influential accounts. And then a couple hours later, it was deleted. But it's sort of a Pandora's box situation. Once people see it, it's hard to convince them that that information wasn't correct. Jessica Galani, media studies professor, University of Pittsburgh, Greensburg, the Pitt Disinformation Lab. Okay, Memorial Day weekend. Many folks, they're traveling right now for the long weekend. A lot of other people staying put. But there is lots and lots and lots to do. Yeah, go to the movies. Top Gun's out. Uh, But maybe you want to stay home. So there's Obi-Wan on Disney+. Plus. Stranger Things is back. Mark Malkin, senior editor at Variety, host of the Just For Variety podcast. Uh, Mark, what are you going to watch this weekend? What am I? I want to watch Obi-Wan because I was at actually Star Wars Celebration yesterday when they were previewing it. And I talked to Ewan McGregor and Hayden Christensen. And they got me really excited to watch it. Okay. Uh, <laughs> what, if you want to stay home and not go and deal with the crowds, and we know that Top Gun is going to be crowded, I suspect anyway, for this weekend. If you want to stay home and uh, other than Obi-Wan, what else is, is really good to watch? The Stranger Things is back. Everybody has been waiting for Stranger Things. Now the question is, will everyone tune in to make Stranger Things the best, you know, uh, the most watched uh, premiere and the show after Bridgerton on Netflix. Um, one thing, you know, that just came out, they have added a warning um, for the first episode because it does involve gun, gun violence. Um, and they've uh, put a warning on that episode before you watch it saying, you know, in light of the tragic shooting at a school in Texas, viewers can may find the opening scene of episode one distressing. So obviously people um, and Hollywood is becoming a lot more sensitive to these issues now after this Texas tragedy. Yeah, but of course, it never stops them from doing it, though. No, it doesn't. Stop, it doesn't stop them from doing it even over this week. You know, there were a couple of premieres planned. Um, It was even the night of the Texas shooting, a premiere the following night. Um, And they didn't actually cancel the premieres. They just said, we're going to do them as a private event. No press is invited, but it didn't stop people from going along and still celebrating um, their TV shows. Are they giving us all of Stranger Things at once? Are they giving us some of it and then like waiting for a two-part or giant finale at the end or something? Yeah, this, the Stranger, what's strange about Stranger Things is (laughs) it is episodes all over the place. There are episodes that are just as long as movies. Um, So there are some people who are really stressed about this. There are other people who say, you know what, I'm going to be able to binge it all together, but It is a lot of hours of streaming. Um, I'm not sure if I'd be doing that for Stranger Things because that's um, some heavy material, but uh, people are psyched for it. Did you have a chance to see uh, Top Gun? I have seen Top Gun, and I have to say, you know what? I'm a sucker. I fell for it. Everybody is saying that. Every critic has said, I I didn't want to like it this much, but I like it this much. (laughs) Yeah, it's not that I... Yeah, but why, why does I... everybody? Yeah, but why does everybody say that? And Mike's right. Everybody says, "Well, I didn't want to like it, but I liked it." Why did everybody not want yeah. to like it and then like <laughs> yeah. it? Yeah, my my thing is, it's not so much that I didn't 
not want to like it. I was just like, okay, this is a movie I grew up with, 80s cheese ball romance. How are they going to redo this? Here's Tom Cruise. He's still a fighter pilot of a certain age. Um, no <laughs> Kelly McGillis. Um, you know, so I was just worried that it was just, you know, that we're going for like a cheap shot of just like, okay, let's just try to make some money off of the Top Gun, you know, legend. And it actually worked. It's very emotional. Um, you know, Tom Cruise, no matter how old he is, he could still fly those jets. Um, and, is the, and it is the kind of movie you want to see in a theater. These, these flight sequences are intense. You really, you feel like you're in the plane with them. So, you know, if you can, and I know not everyone's comfortable with it yet, but if you can see Top Gun in a theater, that's where you want to do it. Do you think it's coming at the right time for, I mean, it's been so bad and there's so many terrible things happening, obviously, but to do that like 80s throwback in the right way and just give people something that they know and they liked and not hit them over the head with too much uh, sequel stuff, but, it, it, you know, give them a good story and give them fighter jets. And it's just like people want to go and watch that right now. Yeah, I, th I think that's part of it. I think obviously there is a big nostalgia for it. I mean, it's been like, I don't want to talk about how many decades because I just told you I grew up with Top Gun. So it's been a lot of decades since we saw that first movie. And what this movie does so well, it does play the, to the nostalgia, but it does it, but it, it, it moves on. So you don't have to have seen the first Top Gun there. Obviously, we know there are a lot of young people out there who've never even heard of Top Gun. But, um, you know, if you've seen Top Gun, you're going to appreciate certain aspects of it much more than someone who hasn't. And But if you haven't seen Top Gun, the story is a standalone story. You don't need to have seen the first one. A lot of the critics are saying that it's a lot better in retrospect than the first one. Do you think that's the case? I have to be honest with you. I kind of remember watching the first one maybe on like a VHS tape. So... I don't. We just all a, assume we remember it. Yeah, yeah. I've seen it in years. That's like, what oh, I yeah, mean. I that, right. <laughs> right, you don't. All you know, all you know, is the one scene with Tom and Kelly McGillis on the motorcycle, and everyone says, "Oh yeah, I remember that movie. I went on my first date in eighth grade." <laughs> no, you don't. <laughs> all right, um, we'll, we'll come back for a second to where we started with with Obi Wan. Sure. I mean, Star Wars fans. This was almost like a thing that they were always clamoring for on the internet. Like, oh, I wish you and McGregor would do an Obi Wan thing, and then it suddenly yeah. happened. <laughs> Yeah, you know, that, that's the power of the fans. And when I spoke to you and yesterday, we talked about that because, you know, when he came out in those Star Wars movies, those movies weren't received so well. And he really does remember that time. He remembers, he said, you know, I'm this young actor. I get this chance to do Star Wars. And then it comes out and really his bubble was burst. But what he said, and I, I think a lot of people do agree with this, as the years have gone on, people have appreciated those movies a lot more. Um, and the fan said, we want to see Ewan again. We want to see Hayden Christensen. Whoever thought we would see Hayden Christensen again as Darth Vader. And now we're seeing. Well, he probably Darth didn't Vader. think he'd be Darth Vader again either. He, he, I, <laughs> that's what I said to him. I said, did you ever think you'd be Darth Vader again? And he, was, he said he was up on his farm in Canada when the phone call came in. And he felt like maybe something would happen when he saw all of this Disney Plus property and all of these Star Wars um, you know, properties coming out and all this content. He thought maybe something will happen one day. And then he got the call and said, come on back and you know, swing around your lightsaber for a while. <laughs> so if you don't want to watch Obi-Wan and you don't want to watch you know, uh, Stranger Things or... Uh... Uh, you don't want to go to the movies and see Top Gun. What's there to do? Well, the new Bosch is out, right? Yeah, but that came out already. Yeah, well, right? I haven't gotten to it yet. 
I mean, I, I, guess I, 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 could, I, guess say that. I yeah. could say something really crazy. Go ahead. Do go it. Ahead. Go ahead. Do it. Go read a it. read a book. Yes. A what? <laughs> a, a what? Read a Kindle, Charles. A book? <laughs> a, a, what's a book? A book? The, uh, Do they still make those? Go and read Variety's website. Uh, Mark Malkin, senior editor at Variety, host of the Just for Variety podcast. <laughs> I don't think we've used that word on this show book. ever. Book. I like books. Yeah, read but, books. But, but we've never Support used your word. local bookstore. You've heard it don't here. listen to this man. You've heard it here first. There are books. <laughs> oh, gosh. Okay. All right. Show's over, folks. <laughs>